What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Adam, no, don't go in there. Stand down. Hey, hey! What did I just say? Delta! I see you. Back up. Wow. Guess that's why they call you Alpha. Eat your heart out, Chris Pratt. Well, because moviegoers had to watch something while they awaited the release of The Force Awakens, the 2015 box office belonged to Mr. Pratt and Jurassic World. And 2015 is the subject of this week's show as we embark on part one of our top 10 movies of the year roundtable with guests Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias. No man-eating dinos, but arty foreign films, harrowing indie dramas, and documentaries so bleak you want to hang yourself? Definitely. Let the countdown begin ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film, offering a two-year student design project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction and nonfiction filmmaking, and hybrid and transmedia projects. Exciting, affordable, and intense. Refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories in an independent practice. Visit vcfa.edu slash film. We're also brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Three movies to mention this week, Josh, including two that just came up in a recent ranking of yours of the films of Quentin Tarantino over at Letterboxd. And I was shocked and horrified <laughs> at how low you had these movies, especially one of these two movies. Kill Bill Volume 2, right? Indeed, your a lot of people were. least favorite Tarantino film. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I I was surprised that as many people rated it much more highly. I, You know, volume one I have right about in the middle of the pack, which, spoiler alert, is about where I have The Hateful Eight right now in my ranking, too. Um, but, you know, Tarantino is a tough one for me to rank because I feel like there's two way at the top there. Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction. And then in the middle are ones that definitely deserve a revisit. Glad to see you can do that right now with the Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 on Mubi. Absolutely. And in their notes, Mubi mentioned fans will never tire of arguing which half is better. I guess we know your answer. You rate 1 pretty significantly higher than 2. I think I'm one of those people that actually prefers 2. So Flips it, huh? Pretty okay. big split there in terms of our rankings of Tarantino, who for me hasn't made a bad film. Steamboat Bill Jr., speaking of good films is also available over at movie this is buster keaton at his peak one of the most beloved iconic comedies in her career that was definitely full of them movie is also offering a special holiday gift sale you can gift someone a 12-month subscription to movie for half off starting friday december 18th and running through christmas so if you give a gift of a year's subscription, not only will Mubi give you a free month of their service, but if you're coming from the U.S., you're going to be entered into a raffle to win Google Chromecast. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, then you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy. You get all that for just $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films and then watch them offline. Listeners of Film Spotting get to try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You 
You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar, and joining us, as they usually do this time of year, our special guests for our end-of-year roundtable, starting with Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Michael, thank you for being on again. Adam, Josh, it's an honor. <laughs> Scott Tobias from formerly The Dissolve, mm-hmm. currently the Next Picture Show podcast, as well as various other esteemed outlets. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. I'm doing great. Great to have both of you. I don't know if it's an honor, but it means something to have you here. It's a privilege. It is the ninth time, in fact, that we have had you on this show. Can you believe that? Wow. For this very roundtable. So we have, we have more than the Police Academy movies. No. <laughs> Absolutely. And yet, you're still not getting paid anything after all these years. <laughs> and I strangely, apologize. we look younger every year. There's like a Dorian Gray thing going <laughs> yeah. on in the studio. You're like Stallone, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. before Creed. Yeah. Well, a little bit of housekeeping off the top. This, of course, is the weekend that Star Wars The Force Awakens opens. We will talk a little bit about Star Wars in the second segment of this show, but the show is devoted to our picks for the top 10 films of the year. This is part one. We'll share picks 10 through 6. And before we get to those, and we have very many guest voicemailers we're going to hear from as well, chiming in with their choices for the number one movie of the year, I always like to throw out the opening salvo of any dominant themes, trends, whatever from the year that really emerged for you. I'll throw out there, as I've talked about Josh a lot on the show in recent weeks, the abundance of wonderful performances by women, whether it be in supporting roles or lead roles, it stands to reason then that there are a number of great films that are telling women's stories. Half of my picks in this top 10 qualify as do a host of others that are in my top 15, 20, or 30. I'm wondering if anybody else had something like that that stood out from this year in cinema. Uh, Yeah, I I would say uh, the one thing that was sort of an organizing principle for me putting together my top 10 list, because I really had about 30 films that I was trying to winnow down. Mm-hmm. What made the list were films that were bold, uh, films that did something that only films can do, that were striking, that, that took risks, that were transporting yeah. in a way that other films weren't. That was the difference maker for me. When it came time to cut things off at 10, I noticed that in the top five and six, I probably had films that all had this one moment where wherever I was watching it, whether it was at home on the couch or in a theater, I suddenly just sat up and locked in immediately with what the movie was doing. And so I realized, okay, of these four or five or six that are trying to bump into that top 10, which ones have a moment like that? And I put those in there because if someone would say to me, what was your movie year like? I would go to those moments. Hmm. And so every pick I have here has something like that. In some cases, that's the reason why it's on the list. It may have some things I didn't care for, but if it had that one thing, then it got on. That's a good question. I mean, you look over, I look over what I have here and I think what I'm seeing in my picks, it's a serious tension between delivering the story for an audience that might make it profitable but it's also strange, the movies are strange enough or distinctive enough and personal enough that they, they throw the formulas off to the side, you know, and that goes from everything from, you know, 50, 100, 200 million dollar pictures. Uh, I'm thinking of one with a lot of cars in it and, uh, you know, that really stood out. And uh, George Miller on one end and then, you know, other just very, very small pictures that, uh, you know, we're never going to, never destined to, to find uh, a wide audience, but somehow have found enough of one uh, just by the way they're made and the way the visions are expressing, as you say, Scott, that uh, you just hang in there and you mm-hmm. sort of feel that tension between the imperative to, quote, deliver and the the creative imperative. Well, let's go ahead and get into the countdown. And to start us off, we do like to feature 
guests who call in with their pick for the number one movie of the year. We started off with Katie Rich and her pick from what I know of this film certainly would qualify as a bold movie. Hello, Film Spotting. This is Katie Rich of VanityFair.com and the podcast Fighting in the War Room and Little Gold Men. And my number one film of 2015 is Son of Saul. It is a Holocaust drama set in a concentration camp, which makes it an understandably tough sell. But Laszlo Nemes, who is a first-time director, believe it or not, makes the brilliant choice to shoot nearly the entire film in shallow focus, which really makes it the story of one man. And the many horrors of the concentration camp are indelible and important, but in the background. And the story, which is about this man trying to give his son a proper burial under these unimaginable circumstances, is really surprising, too, and far more morally complex than it sounds at first. It's a really tough watch, I admit, but Son of Saul consistently surprised me and then inevitably broke my heart. I didn't see anything else like it this year, and that's why it's my number one pick. Son of Saul there, a movie that I have been putting off despite some opportunities to see it just because the subject matter seems so heavy. I'm curious, though, because I know that there are some critics right here in this room who have very strong, positive feelings for the movie. And I know that there are some other critics out there who are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, including friend of the show, Peter Labuza from the Cinephiliacs, who rated it his worst movie of the year. So I want to see where I'm going to fall. Yeah, that's that's, uh, I enjoy Peter. (laughs) We all do. (laughs) Thank you to Katie Rich for that great voicemail that will launch us into our picks. Michael, What's your number 10 movie of the year? My number 10, I caught up with four days ago. There, there were a handful of movies that were well-regarded all year that just you know, just based on the craziness and the, the chaos of the year, you, you, you're away maybe the week it opens commercially, and we ended up picking up a review from the LA Times, which always hurts. But I saw Tangerine, finally, which mm-hmm. launched at Sundance, I believe, back in January. This is Sean Baker's film that was shot for nearly nothing, and... You know, it's very simple. It's my new favorite Christmas movie. I mean, it's two, <laughs> two, two L.A. transgender streetwalkers are looking frantically for the pimp who done one of them wrong. And this film is as simple as can be. It's just a great sprint through all kinds of neighborhoods and streets uh, that I, I find a little bit familiar having lived in L.A. a little bit. But it's, it, that, that film makes L.A. look like a new camera subject, which you can it's, that, that is not easy to find. And uh, improbably beautiful. I just think this thing moves like a streak. And when I read the press coming out of Sundance, I thought, sounds interesting. Uh, but then you start reading things like, oh, you know, shot for very little on, you know, kind of uh, tricked up iPhone mm-hmm. cameras and all. Mm-hmm. And, and then you start wondering if, if the film is really more than just its sort of story of poverty filmmaking, you know, fi- finding an audience. Good Lord, this that's thing it. moves. So top 10. No, that's absolutely it. Uh, because you could read that plot synopsis and think, oh boy, we're in for a very earnest film here. And this film is not that. This film has got all sorts of energy. It's a screwball comedy, really, at, at heart, with with kind of a, I, I think, a very sad sort of underbelly to it. Honest, um, an honest, honest underbelly. Yeah, right, exactly. The pathos are not cheap and engineered. Yeah. And, and it is paced like a shot. I think it's, it's terrific. And it fits in this, this director, Sean Baker, is very talented. He did a film called Starlet that I think people should check out. And uh, is very interested in outsiders and sex workers in L.A. and uh, has very expressive ways of dealing with it. So, Tangerine, also a Golden it. Brick nominee. So I've noticed a lot of people on Letterboxd and so forth seeming to catch up with it. So um, hopefully they'll be doing that and maybe tossing a vote, a listener vote, its way. I'm, mm-hmm. so, I'm so thrilled just to catch up with something that really ended up being a, a contender in the top yeah. ten for me. And, That's uh, great. And, yeah, great. Scott, you're number ten. 
Okay, my, I'm going to start with my most obscure pick. <laughs> this is a film called Western. Uh, it's a documentary by the Ross brothers, Turner and Bill. It was only released in New York for a little bit and never came to Chicago. But I'm convinced that the Ross brothers will one day be mentioned in the same breath as the Maisels brothers. Mm. Uh, they're that good. The previous films, uh, one called 45365, the other one is... Chopatulis. They're these verite sort of slice of life portraits of a particular setting that just draw out a locale as evocatively as possible. And uh, what Western is about the friendly relationship between border towns in Texas and Mexico and how outside concerns about immigration and cartel violence threaten to undermine it. Hmm. And it's a it's a film that makes that tension very subtle, but mostly just gets into the culture, that gets into the sense of, of, of brotherhood. And, um, you know, it is, as the title suggests, also a Western. Uh, really beautiful film. It was the best film I saw at True False Film Festival last year. And I think these guys are going places. So uh, mark that in your book. Great. I will. I haven't seen it. I thought Michael was the only one allowed to make picks that we've never even heard right. of. Right. I was going to say, <laughs> usually, Josh, we count on these guys coming in with one or two movies we haven't been able to see uh-huh. yet. I hadn't even heard of Western until he just mentioned it, and I feel bad about it because it sounds like a pretty fascinating film. So thank you, Scott, for the tip. Josh, your number 10. My number 10 is It Follows. I think it was another really good year for horror, 2015. I liked M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. I liked Guillermo del Toro's Michael. I know you didn't so much Crimson Peak. We talked about that on the show. I was also spooked at Sundance by The Witch and just caught up with, for consideration, Austria's intensely unnerving Good night, mommy. Yikes, that that one's disturbing. <laughs> Didn't quite make the list though. I went with It Follows. This is the one with a premise that, you know, seems very silly. The heroine played by Micah Monroe. She has sex with her new boyfriend. He tells her he's passed a curse on to her and she should look around for this slowly approaching, shape-changing figure because if it catches her, it's going to kill her. And the only way for her to escape the curse, of course, is to have sex with someone else. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you, back in the car. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. It can look like anyone, but there's only one of it. The writer and director here, David Robert Mitchell, he uses this to do some really provocative things, I think, with the sex as death trope that governs so many horror films going back to probably especially, I'd say, Friday the 13th and Halloween and movies around that time. So this is an homage to those, um, but also moves beyond them. I think it's far less simplistic about that and, and certainly far less puritanical than those movies tended to be. I do, I believe some of you on this panel, I forget who, had some problems with this movie's internal logic. Am oh, I remembering tons, tons of trouble with people yeah. on this panel, Josh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no trouble with it. You had no, okay, good. I had, a little tra- I had a little trouble with the general level of energy in the movie, but that's... Uh, that's yeah, a, that's no, you're right. It's, it yeah. is this uh, slow burn horror movie that maybe feels like it should be giving you more shocks. I, I think I like that. Quentin but, Tarantino uh, also having some problems with the internal logic of it follows. Oh, well, maybe that for explains what why I liked it. Let it go, man. <laughs> no, I, you know, for me, I understand... I'd certainly understand those quibbles because the idea that a horror movie should be built on rules makes sense to me. And and I usually, you know, want a film to be that way. But this, it follows created this sort of, uh, it was a, a metaphysical ambiance to it that to me, by the time it got to that ending, which is the most problematic part for most people, 
it was almost like a dream logic going on. So, so I was all in there at that point. Well, mm. I, I like this filmmaker. I mean, I really, I really liked uh, the myth of the American sleepover a lot. And, and this film I thought was pretty intriguing. And, and, and in the end, I was a little thrown off by these boring, realistic objections, you know, about like, oh, it, it does a set up and follow a clear set of rules and all that, which I really usually don't care much about. But I, I guess I felt that it was just a little languid in the technique. And, uh, for, you mm. know, for me, I gave it a second shot, though, based on this guy's previous film. And, and uh, all in all, it's not a film I dislike enough to to say I don't want to see the third one, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but still, I think it's a pretty weak pick, Josh. Josh, well, thanks. <laughs> I'm glad you brought it back around to that. <laughs> well, I think it's the Village Voice poll that at least three of us participated in this year where they ask you the movie that everyone's wrong about, and I was grateful for It Follows because it was my only answer to that question. It turns out I'm not the only one, though. Michael, you're with me on It Follows, being a film that I, too, have a ton of respect for. I feel bad being negative about it because I like so much of what it's doing, but ultimately didn't work for me obviously as much as it did for Josh and it sounds like Scott. I don't want to repeat your preamble there, Scott, in terms of your guiding principles, but a little bit of setup to my number 10 pick. You're going to hear one of our guests in a bit talk about cinema's ability to surprise and delight us. And as I was forming my top 10, the movies that did that were what really rose to the top. Movies that you don't just appreciate or respect for their craft or their insight or anything else, but truly stirred something inside me. They thrilled me in some way beyond just the spectacle or the suspense. And number 10, it's hard not to be thrilled by the energy and intensity of Katana, Kiki Rodriguez, and Maya Taylor. Michael, you already talked about Tangerine. (laughs) (laughs) Are we supposed to share it? Yes, we're supposed to share it, bitch. I'm broke. Happy, man. I've been great. You probably got tits, bitch. (laughs) This estrogen has been kicking in. The only thing that hasn't broken down was these arms. Everything else on my body looks good. Oh, honey. Girl, you try that look like the real thing. So, I got some good news to tell you. What? I've been keeping a secret about me and Chester. Girl. <laughs> Woo! I know what it is. Oh, You're girl. breaking up with him. Thank God. Because, what? honey, for him to be cheating on you like what? that. Wait, 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 wait. What? Uh, um, you, you didn't know? The surprise factor comes in just being exposed to this vividly captured subculture of transgendered L.A. prostitutes. And L.A. is a foreign world to me anyway, unlike you, Michael. And this world, this subculture truly is its own world because it has defined geographical boundaries and language and codes that Baker really dives into. He neatly weaves all these other characters as well who represent outside subcultures into that primary narrative thread. We get an Armenian cab driver and his passengers who intersect with Cindy and Alexandra. Another surprise, of course, was just how dynamic a movie could look being shot on an iPhone. I think a tricked up iPhone is the best way to put it, as you did, Michael. But there is this oversaturated, hyper real quality to the images that I think perfectly meshes with these big larger-than-life personalities of those two main characters. And it has two-shot or scene-of-the-year candidates for me. Josh, you've talked about the long-take car wash sexual tryst. But for me, I think an even better one, without spoiling anything... Wait, was he talking about it just privately, or was it on air? I think it was on air. I can't recall. I guess guess that's better. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) After all the chaos we've watched unfold over this day, we get a final, still, quiet moment between friends at the end of that tumultuous day. And that, for me, was the most moving moment in the entire film. I, too, was going to make the, it's set on Christmas Eve, it's a new 
holiday family classic, but you beat me to it, <laughs> I mean, Michael, to, as you did to this pick yeah, of Tangerine. I'll wait till the family's a little older, I think. But but no, two other things. This is the most brilliantly edited film of the year, and it was such a pleasure to find out that it was edited by, in fact, the director who knew exactly how to take the footage he had. And all the all the times it really does start intersecting stories or cross-cutting in a bolder way between two narrative tracks, it, it's, it never loses a, a single moment of lucidity and it never it never gets less interesting as cinema it's just it's just hmm. this thing really this thing, it cooks it cooks i'm glad you said that michael because i was just rewatching, as a matter of fact that car wash scene which is in the movie michael not in my life yep. and i noticed that edited right in the middle spliced because it is this long take and i remember that's what blew me away about it, is how they were sustaining this there's a quick cut to cindy who's found the girl that she's been trying to track down and it's just a quick flash but again it makes that connection between them as friends and and reminds us of where this is all taking place so yeah the editing is fantastic yeah yeah i mean a little bit is owed maybe to some of the Godard, you know sort of fizz of something like breathless but it's he's just you can just tell he's working very intuitively on how to put these things together not so much just in any kind of you know how do I keep the story moving because the movie never stops moving but it's uh, it's just a great it's a perfectly sized story for, for what for what this movie's trying to do yeah. yeah Michael we're back to you your number nine film of the year number nine is Heart of a Dog by Laurie Anderson now I my preamble was talking about uh, the, the stress or the tensions between commercial dictates and creative expression within I mean she doesn't give a no commercial intentions here fig about about you know like whether or not this thing's really going to find a big audience but I've always found her a fascinating multimedia artist I've seen her a couple times live over the years and I just think this really really dreamy in in every sense of the word uh, amalgam of kind of what life is like in the post 9/11 surveillance culture we find ourselves in the fact that she's trying to get some of these larger impressions expressed through the eyes of her own rat terrier and also through the prism of her childhood in Glen Ellen of suburban Chicago. It's You just think, well, how, how the hell is that all going to work? And Somehow uh, it does, though. It does. And just like every every time I've seen her on stage, it's just, you know, that, that, that really lulling, insistent, completely perceptive voice, literally her voice and also her artistic voice, uh, makes it all kind of make sense in one. And uh, I, that was one is, you know... Scott used the word transporting in the intro. I mean, I was I was up, up, and away with this one. I, yeah. I really liked it. When my mother died, she was talking to the animals that had gathered on the ceiling. She spoke to them tenderly. All you animals, she said. Her last words, all scattered. Different trains. Places she'd always meant to go. Don't forget you're in the hospital, he kept saying. She holds up her hand. Thanks so much. No, the pleasure is all mine. I'm with you. I love Heart of a Dog. Scott, you're number nine. My number nine is The Hateful Eight. Uh, which is a bit of a hybrid movie in that it combines the single location intensity of Reservoir Dogs with the Civil War politics of Django Unchained. But Quentin Tarantino's fusion of a Western setting with an Agatha Christie mystery uh, gives it a distinct life. I also just appreciate the film as spectacle, this this 70-millimeter roadshow with the overture, you know, this, this big release. It just celebrates the idea 
of going to a movie theater and having a good time. And he's somebody who can spin a yarn, period. I mean, this is a, you know, this is, I watched all 187 minutes plus Overture and was absolutely riveted by it. Um, really? Hmm. Yeah, well, you not? No. <laughs> really? That's, that's what the really but, meant. Why? But, but I want to see it. I want to see it again yes. properly because they're going to screen it in '70 at the right. before the two-week roadshow. Yeah, I really wish we could have seen it in that uh, format. But I, uh, I mean, I, I haven't even sorted out my reasons why yet, frankly, Scott. But I, I, it's to me, it's like 60 minutes of story stretched to 180. And boy, I just, uh, I, I was really. Riveted by. And I don't even have your back here. You don't know how much it pains me to not be able stewing. to participate in a Quentin <laughs> Tarantino defense. But wow. I missed the Hateful Eight. It did, of course, screen for critics. There was that low oh, screening. Missed it. Oh, I thought, I, you saw, I thought you saw it and no. didn't, didn't like no, it or something. No, absolutely could no, not fasc- attend. But fascinatingly divisive because the people who like it really respond. No, and I, and I, also, really feel, I also feel like there's really interesting racial politics happening in this film that I haven't even turn my head towards yeah, that, that's the cinematic one of the quality things. of it is so striking. The other thing I really like about it too in terms of the cinematics is that we've had all of this business about it being shot in 70 millimeter and the fact that it takes place mostly in this one location is actually kind of a masterstroke. In interior, my in an interior. In yeah, interior yeah. and I cannot wait to see it in 70 millimeter because of the depth of field which is so much the the... It, which is really the best thing about 70 millimeter, just right, the richness right, right. of that image. You know, I saw it, I saw a DCP version, which was fine, but uh, I'm really excited to revisit it both for that cinematic quality and because I feel like there's a thematic richness of the film that I wasn't really processing because on a story level, it was just blown me away. Hmm, cool. Yeah, there's absolutely intentionality in doing 70 millimeter inside, which mm-hmm. seems ridiculous, but it it does make sense. The racism elements, oh racist, maybe you could say. I don't know. I think the whole conversation with Tarantino and the N-Word is going to be revisited because of this movie. And that's one of the things I'm still trying to process about it. But like you, Scott, it's going to take another look to really make my way through it. Opens Christmas Day here in Chicago at the Music Box playing in 70 millimeter. Yeah, it will be in other theaters. All the but theaters in 70. Not 70. And then, no, it will. Oh, okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. For two weeks, it's going to play a handful of, of theaters in the area in 70 before the somewhat shorter digital presentation takes over. I know it's going to be in certain cities. There's this roadshow thing going on. I didn't know that it was outside just the music box here go to, in Chicago. Go to the music, so. But the music box is the one place where you're guaranteed of, a, of, a, of an honest-to-God skilled projectionist mm. in the booth who knows how to handle 70-millimeter platters. So There you go. For my number nine, I have a little bit of help, which is good because I'm not fully qualified, I feel like, to have this film here. But someone who is and has it as his best of the year is Sean Gilman, an erudite member of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Hi guys, this is Sean Gilman from Seattle Screen Scene and The George Sanders Show, and my pick for the best film of 2015 is Ho Shao Shen's unusual wuxia film, The Assassin. It is, of course, a remarkably beautiful film with a gorgeous, languid rhythm and an opaque approach to narrative that nonetheless tells a fascinating, if not especially complex, story. A story about a killer who isn't sure she wants to kill anymore, Ho weaves a tangle of political and familial imperatives around star Shu Chi while keeping us always within her perspective drawing us into an empathetic embrace of her character by reversing the cliches of melodramatic storytelling. Far from the reputation as cold or remote, I find Ho's movies in general, and this one in particular, to be deeply emotionally engrossing. He's the best filmmaker in the world, and this is one of the best films of the decade thus far. So it's the cultural context that I feel like I don't fully have in hand here to appreciate everything that's going on. But then again, I thought, you know, 
if more understanding would only increase my appreciation, it should probably be higher up on my list, really. Just put it there right now. I think Shu Chi is mesmerizing in a very minimalist performance, but this really made my list for two dazzling sequences, and we discussed both of them in our review, Adam. The one where Shu Chi is spying on a potential target from behind these softly blowing curtains, and they drift back and forth in front of the camera, and then that climactic confrontation she has with her master at the mountaintop and the fog just it's seemingly summoned from below and the scene just succumbs to it so this is masterful stuff from a a master filmmaker that i can't wait to become more familiar with we've shared some feedback to our discussion of the assassin and it was very encouraging to hear from listeners who found our review instructive it provided a little bit of a way in for them to this movie but it was a little bit ironic because like you i didn't feel all that qualified to talk about this movie certainly not talk about ho shao shen i think I was too distanced from this movie, for whatever reason, too detached from it to have the overwhelming reaction that Sean Gilman did. But I agree with so much of what he says and what you are saying about the technical aspects. For me, it was a no-brainer pick in various ballots for Best Cinematography of the Year and Best Production Design or Art Direction of the Year. There's a lot to really love and appreciate about The Assassin. Yeah, I just missed my top ten. I mean, I mean, I, I love I love this filmmaker a great deal, too. And just to see all these amazing remote corners of China that most of us have never seen on screen or in life. And yet the film, I think, is much more than just pretty or or beautiful to look at. It's not just pictorially beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's really cinematically astute. And, and uh, Yeah, he makes the landscapes, as I said, part yeah. of what's going on in the scene. They're just not there as backdrop. Right, you know, right. They're acting with the people and also in the picture. And it's got a very steady rhythm, but not not monotonous. I mean, it's very, when, when you get when you get these bursts, these sort of sudden bursts of violence, uh, uh, it's it, it's somehow all the more effective because the camera isn't where it usually is in these sorts of martial arts scenes put together by lesser directors. You know, it's often it's a medium shot and the takes go a little longer than you expect, and yet it doesn't turn into kind of a showy sort of extended take situation. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's I, I, he's really on another. He is he's on a he's on a plane of you know one of the five or six best we have in the world right now. My number nine is a movie scripted by Charlie Kaufman co-directed by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. It is Anomalisa. This is the stop-motion animated movie about a customer service expert and author <laughs> who meets a few women, but one in particular that he connects with during Celebrity a business trip. customer service expert. He is indeed. Expert. People, I didn't know there were those. People do recognize but... him. That's right. On a business trip to Cincinnati, David Thewlis plays the voice. He voices the main character, Michael Jennifer Jason Lee is the woman, Lisa, and Tom Noonan my understanding is virtually voices everyone else in the film. There's a sex scene in Anomalisa (laughs) that is one of the more provocative scenes of any type I saw in 2015. And if you think it might be unnerving and a little bit funny to see animated characters engage in very intimate sexual acts, maybe somewhat similar to the marionettes of Team America World Police, yes, yes, it is unnerving and a little bit funny, but again, very provocative in all the right ways. And I think this movie taps into a couple of fundamental human truths, one being our conflicting desires to conform, but also be an individual, someone who stands apart and whose life has meaning and whose life matters, and the other relating to the finicky nature of attraction and love. Maybe we can get into that a little bit more when we review this movie. It opens January 8th in Chicago. I don't know whether or not I'll be able to articulate my response more thoroughly than that, but 
I know we're going to give it a full discussion, and I can't wait. It will force me to watch it again, which I can't wait to do, and Kaufman's movies really require that second viewing. Yeah, I've seen it twice now. I really do hope we get to review it in full. The only thing I'd say right now is the most shocking thing about that sex scene for me was how tender Exactly. It was. I mean, I, I didn't see another one like it in any other film this year, probably a couple of years. That's the juxtaposition, that intimacy, that tenderness of animated characters doing things I haven't <laughs> seen animated characters do before is shocking's too strong of a word because it, it suggests that it's it's going for that. It's not trying to push buttons. It It's doing something more profound than that. Well, it's awkward, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's the Charlie Kaufman touch, is that these social interactions are pained. Yes. And, uh, and the way is, most of them is, are. That is something yeah. that animated films, animated films are all about fluid motion, not about stops and starts. Yeah. And of course, this film, I mean, this film was right on the cusp for me, but it does have uh, also one of my favorite scenes of the a year involving uh, the song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Yeah. <laughs> a great song used wonderfully oh, in yeah. Anomalisa, my number nine. We're going to get to some of that Force Awakens conversation we promised when we come back. Michael, I heard you thought it was just good. I'm not sure that's allowed, you know. Good. <laughs> I've, I've, already been told to, I've already been told to leave Jakku, uh, the, the planet. I have to find my own Spoilers. planet now. Spoilers, yeah. Michael. <laughs> There's a planet in this thing? <laughs> We're also going to reveal the results of the film spotting poll. We'll name the listener's choice for best film of 2015. In keeping with our year-end tradition, we asked friend of the show, Sam Smith, to curate some of his favorite pieces of 2015 film music. He's a musician and a designer. He's host of The Poster Boys, a podcast devoted to talk about movie poster art and interviews with poster artists. You may remember him from our top five movie posters episode that was in May of this year, episode 538. First, we're going to hear Sam make his pick for his favorite posters of the year, followed by the first of his choices for 2015's best film music. You will hear Rohan from Josh's number nine film, Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin. Stay with us. Hey, this is Sam Smith from the Poster Boys podcast calling from Nashville. You guys asked me to send my picks for favorite movie posters of the year, and two of those would be the posters for Queen of Earth by Anna Katrina Bach and the one sheet for The Assassin by Palace Works. So as it so happens, we talked to both of these poster artists in our new episode on the best posters of 2015. You can hear that at theposterboys.tumblr.com. Thanks, guys, for another great year, and talk to you soon.
Hey folks, just a quick interruption to mention that we are brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. So many of our listeners over the years, Josh, have written in with their testimonials, espousing the virtues of the Squarespace system. The fact that their sites look professionally designed regardless of the skill level of the user. There's no coding required. The tools are intuitive and easy to use. The technology is state-of-the-art that ensures security and stability and millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust Squarespace. They're offering a free domain. If you sign up for a year, you can start your free trial site today. No credit card is required at squarespace.com. So if you're out there, you're looking to start a podcast, just have a home for your work, maybe even have a home just for your resume. You're looking for a job, maybe has nothing to do with the arts. Squarespace might be the ideal fit for you. When you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM. That way you'll get a special offer on your first purchase. Hello, Adam, Josh, and Sam, and Film Spotting listeners. This is Ryan Johnson calling in for uh, a best of 2015. Um, so I, there wasn't one movie this year that I was totally obsessed with, uh, but that's not because there weren't great movies this year. There were a ton of amazing films. I just had a bunch of movies I loved. Um, as opposed to like one, so and you know everything from Fury Road to Ex Machina, While We're Young, Crimson Peak. There were just so many great movies. Um, and I'll also give the caveat that I haven't seen a lot of films yet. Uh, most notably, Hateful Eight. So, but uh, thinking about the year, if there's one experience in a the theater that um, kind of stood out to me, uh, I'd have to say it's The Lobster, uh, which is the first English language film by the Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, who did Dogtooth. Uh, and I just thought the movie was um, kind of amazing. It, it stars Colin Farrell and uh, Rachel Weisz. And I, get, I guess what stands out about it to me, it, it, it was so unique and it's just one of those films that reminds you um, how cinema can still delight and surprise you Uh, and it has this outlandish premise that it commits to 100% and by the end of it brings it all around in this really emotional way I I just thought it was amazing so uh, The Lobster for 2015 I hope you guys have a wonderful new year and I hope to talk to you next year Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam, Josh, Michael Phillips, and Scott Tobias. That was Ryan Johnson, kind enough to make time to share his pick for the number one film of 2015. I don't know what else he has going on. He's just writing and directing Star Wars Episode Eight. I suppose that might occupy him a little bit. We do appreciate it, Ryan. He is, of course, also the director of Looper and Golden Brick, namesake brick you did not hear this from me but apparently ryan is going to lift the plot of the lobster in its entirety for star wars 8 you choose the dark side you turn into a hedgehog it's as simple as that spoiler alert as ryan mentioned the lobster was directed by yorgos lanthimos he made the golden brick winning film dog tooth scott you were a big champion of that film i know the lobster is going to have the distinction i think of making three consecutive most anticipated movies of the year list it originally made my list in january 2014 was hoping it'd come out that year got pushed now it's into 2016 technically it's a 2016 movie but ryan he's making a star wars movie he can do whatever he wants (laughs) you guys have seen the lobster 
Are you guys all in on it, Michael? Scott? Oh, it's, oh, it's a pip. Okay, I, I haven't seen it, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. It gets the Michael Phillips pip seal of approval. It. I love it. <laughs> no, it is. It's a pippin. I'll tell you. It's uh, it really. He's he's. In fact, I prefer the dog to him in many ways. So yeah, really, yeah, yeah. That's a bold statement. I love to hear that. Speaking of the Golden Bricks, our overlooked, underseen movie of the year. You'll be helping us choose the 2015 winner. More on that in a bit. But first, Ryan's voicemail provides. A little bit of a nice segue into some brief talk about the latest Star Wars installment. It is The Force Awakens. If you are a podcast listener of Film Spotting, if you're a subscriber, you've already heard, or maybe you're waiting to hear Josh and me weigh in with our immediate reactions after seeing the film. Our quarter-processed thoughts. Yes, quarter-processed. Regretting anything you said there? I'm not. No. <laughs> okay, are you? Good. No, I think that was all right. I mean, but, I've done a lot more thinking about it since, obviously. Yeah, me too. But I think I'll stand by that. We have not heard any comments yet from Michael and Scott. Now, I know, Michael, by the time the show is airing, your review will be out. It's probably already out, in fact, in the Tribune. So we can link to that in the show notes. It's laying around. It's just laying Laying around. around. You can hear Michael's full reaction there, but Michael and Scott, we'd love to hear some initial takes from you on The Force Awakens. Scott, take it. I mean, you liked it slightly better than I did, but I liked it. I think probably so. Um, we're going to actually talk about it on the, our podcast, The Next Picture Show. We're going to do. We're going to compare it with the original Star Wars. But uh, I would say that I liked it quite a bit. It's just, it's very conservative would be my knock on it. Hmm. I, I think it's, a lot of it is about kind of just delivering the goods right, and right. repackaging old plot materials and old themes that that I think are would satisfy fans which it, and as a fan I was satisfied but I think one thing it does very well and I guess this is where Ryan Johnson comes in is that it sets the table for a lot of potentially great movies to come because the new characters are excellent yeah. um, so, right, so, yeah. so so Ryan's got to be feeling a lot of pressure right now right but, <laughs> but he wouldn't want to you know it's a slam dunk, is what you're saying. It's it, all there. It really for is. Right, it really but it is. Choke on that. It, is luc- it is lucrative pressure, though. I mean, that's good. That's good for him. You know. We hope. <laughs> uh, I think Daisy Ridley is a real, mm-hmm. a real movie star in the Me making, too. and, yeah, and I, think, I think that character is. Is, is as different a universe as George Miller created in Mad Max Fury Road. I think it's kind of marvelous that you have two really striking, uh, well-developed heroines that are not sexually objectified in, a, in the usual action movie way at all. It's Charlize Theron and Mad Max and uh, in a very different, much more innocent vein, uh, Daisy Ridley in The Force Awakens. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that is. It, the first hour, I think, of The Force Awakens really makes you think we have mm-hmm. a wonderful sort of balance between uh, nostalgic concerns and bringing in the the new people. And the second hour is a little deflating. A little bit. What's promising about that, though, Michael, is that first hour, now that I think about it, the nostalgia doesn't really kick in in earnest until the tail end of that first hour. So so that bodes well for where these new characters and new storylines could go. And and look, no surprise, J.J. Abrams has made some movies I like fairly well, some movies I like quite a bit. The two Star Trek features... And I'm speaking as a guy who didn't really um, obsess over the series, although I liked it. You know, those those are very satisfying films in a way, in the same way that this Force Awakens is very satisfying. I think for a, a kind of a moderate to medium fan like myself. Uh, we cannot run them. We might in that quad jumper. Hey, we need a pilot. We've got one. You. Ah! And to echo what you were saying about Daisy Ridley, I, I am the father of two girls, 
And uh, it is going to be nice to potentially have the kind of relationship to Star Wars that my father had with me with perhaps my, my daughters. I think yeah. they, that is a character they will connect with, hmm. I think. Totally. You guys expressed a lot of the same pros and cons as we did during our conversation the other day. And if you want to hear more of that, again, that review of The Force Awakens is available now to podcast subscribers or you can listen at filmspotting.net. We're going to get back to our best of 2015 countdown with the listener's pick for the best film of 2015, as of early December anyway, in just a minute. But first, we do have a few notes. We have been promoting, Josh, our upcoming live show, our 2015 wrap party, because this two-part roundtable isn't enough of a look back at 2015. We have to devote an entire live show to it. It's going to be on Saturday, January 9th at the main stage in Chicago. Tickets are on sale now. You can visit filmspotting.net for more details. And we shake things up there. It's not just rehashing our top 10 list or not even talking about traditional categories like best female performance. These are things like funniest moment. I think we're going to do best action scene. It was a great year mm -hmm. for action. So things like that. We'll be playing some videos, getting some guests to chime in with their picks on these different categories. So it's a lot of fun. We didn't get to do it last year. I missed it. Mm -hmm. But when we did it the previous two years, it was a blast. Now, I don't know why I want to hurt ticket sales by pointing this out, but one Michael Phillips, who has been an onstage guest at every live show we've done, I think we've done four of them, but nevertheless, he's been on stage for all four of them. You're not going to make it this year, Michael. I have, I have a prior commitment. I'm sorry. Uh, what can I do? I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'm I'll beginning go to, the to doubt one. your commitment to Sparkle Motion. <laughs> I'll, go, <laughs> I, I'll go to the next one, all right? I'll if anything go. goes wrong, we can just blame him, though. Good point. Right? Like, we have he's a scapegoat now. We have a scapegoat. We are planning on having very many members of the Next Picture Show podcast involved in some capacity. So, Scott, will be touching base with you on that in the very near future. Again, filmspotting.net for more information about that live show, Saturday, January 9th. For our Chicago area listeners, we also have some movie passes to give away. The first week of January, you can attend a screening of my number nine movie of the year, Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa. It's playing at the Landmark Century Cinema, also at the Landmark on December 21st. So coming up here very soon, the screening of Todd Haynes's Carol. And we have admit two passes during the run of engagement for the movie Youth, starring Harvey Keitel and Michael Caine from the great beauty director Paolo Sorrentino. So a host of free movie passes, you can enter to win all of those passes at filmspotting.net. There's information right there in the top stories. And Scott, you touched on this just a few minutes ago, but as we look to some happenings with the Film Spotting Podcast Network, the ever-growing Film Spotting Podcast Network, your show, The Next Picture Show, has a current episode up, the two-part episode devoted to Toy Story and The Good Dinosaur. And I'm wondering if you can tease us a little bit with what's coming up with next week's pairing. Okay, the next week's pairing is uh, The Revenant and the film Agira, The Wrath of God mm -hmm. by Werner Herzog. Smart. So that is perfect. Be, it really is. A, a good show. I don't think you can watch The Revenant. If you're a huge fan of Agira as I am, you can't see some of those opening shots or 20 minutes in or so of The Revenant where they're going down the, the river on that raft, that makeshift raft, and all the chaos surrounding them and not think of Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog. How about Tom Hardy doing a great riff on Klaus Kinski? I thought that was mm. one of the things I enjoyed about the picture. Yeah, let's not go there, Josh. <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> maybe we will in a little bit. <laughs> maybe maybe we will, unfortunately. And what you were discussing earlier with Star Wars The Force Awakens, your first show of 2016, a comparison to Episode Four: A New Hope. So yeah, I think, and, I, th and I believe 
those films have quite a bit in common. Just I was a bit. Say, you you <laughs> like might be maybe able to a just little, do maybe actually a little more in common than I would like them to have. <laughs> yeah. Also, we want to congratulate Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, the hosts of Film Spotting SVU, where they discuss some of the latest offerings on streaming video and on demand. They recently celebrated their 100th podcast. So and 100th, so that means they're in syndication? It's like Mike and Molly. <laughs> mm-hmm. They can just kick back and pretty much jobs. Exactly how it works. <laughs> the money's just Fantastic. rolling in for those 100 podcasts. But in anticipation of The Hateful Eight, Matt and Allison devoted their Listener's Choice review to Tarantino's and Glorious Bastards. And they basically spent 20 minutes kind of trashing it, so now I have to disown them after <laughs> no, all that. No, congratulations. good for them. Good exactly. Good Thank for you, them. Michael. That was good so gratifying to hear. And trashing is a little strong. I mean, they were they had initial reservations about it when they first saw it. Any negativity it. is trashing to yeah, me, Josh. Yeah, that's true. You're very sensitive when it comes to Tarantino. But that was good to hear. I, I didn't feel quite as alone in the universe after that okay. podcast. Well, also on that show, Matt and Allison announced the winners of their Svuvi Awards, their own <laughs> long-running version of a year-end rap show. And we have to give a preliminary congratulations here to Matt and his wife expecting Mm -hmm. their first child. So Matt's been a little bit busy, still found time to record that 100th episode. To find Film Spotting SVU and the next picture show, you can do that in iTunes. Just search for them there or over at filmspottingsvu.com and nextpictureshow.net. Hey there, Film Spotting. This is Allison Wilmore from the Film Spotting SVU podcast. And my favorite film of the year is Mad Max. Fury Road. I feel like no other movie this year tried to melt my face off so thoroughly while also making such a good case for film as a visual medium. Speaking of film spotting SVU, Allison Wilmore there, her pick for the number one movie of the year because who doesn't want movies to try to melt your face thoroughly? (laughs) I think she summed Fury Road up very well, and that helps us segue into our poll results. A couple weeks ago on the show, we asked you, much to your chagrin, it turns out, to weigh in with your favorite film of 2015. So listeners got to vote. Obviously, a lot still in December to see, but we gave you some prominent options based on kind of where awards are going and some of the different critics' ballots. The choices were Ex Machina, Inside Out, Mad Max, Fury Road, The Martian, Spotlight, or Other. Josh, how did it come out? Three at the bottom here. The Martian received 4% of the vote. Spotlight got 8% and Inside Out got 10%. Other is here in third place with 20% of the vote. Sicario and Caro got the highest number of write-in votes there. The number two film, Ex Machina, with 21% of the vote, but pretty much running away with it, was Mad Max Fury Road, 37%. Maybe a bit of a surprise. Boyhood ran away with it last year with only 30% of the vote, but much more than the other candidates. Mad Max actually got a higher percentage of votes this year than Boyhood That's because it's a better film. (laughs) And we'll move on. J.D. commented on the poll. He said, regular folk need until March 2016 to truly answer this question, but Sicario will do for now. Indeed, we apologize again for forcing you to vote so early in the year, but Sicario, a good choice. And as you noted, Josh did pretty well in that other category. We heard from Kathy W. and Alfred, New York. Ex Machina was stunning, and I can't stop thinking about it. The Martian somehow managed to exceed my high expectations after loving the book. But Mad Max was literally breathtaking. There was one short pause about a half hour in when I shook myself, remembered to breathe, and sternly told myself that this was a movie. I haven't been that viscerally immersed in a film in a long time. And as a bonus, I finally found a name for my bitchin' Subaru, and now I get to drive Furiosa to my college (laughs) campus job every day. I love it. (laughs) We should all have a Furiosa in our lives. Jonas McCaffrey writes, I had to go with Other because not only were my two favorite films, Phoenix and Get, The Trial of Vivian Amsalem, not 
not on the list, but they haven't been reviewed by Film Spotting. Adam and Josh have talked previously about how this has been a good year for female roles, and both films feature a lead female character finding her voice, both figuratively and literally, in a time of oppression. I hope you guys are able to rectify these two blind spots in the near future. Now, Jonas, technically correct that neither of those movies got a full review on the show, but maybe he missed our fall movie preview. Episode 553, I did strongly recommend Phoenix on that show, and I do hope more people get a chance to see that great movie. Alex Lovendahl in Madison, Wisconsin says, I loved four of the five films in the poll, but the best film of the year must be Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, a powerful documentary which complements its companion, The Act of Killing, with the antidote required to humanize the atrocities described, The Look of Silence also serves as a great film about conversation, confrontation, and the power of the human spirit. It's also impossible to ignore the amazing cinematography in each of these films. Oppenheimer's documentaries are two of the best-looking films I've ever seen. Finally, we hear from Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C. I just wanted to offer my two pennies on the year as a whole. I think 2015 has been a great year for movies. It's a rough go for plebes like me because the movie year is absurdly backloaded. Carol, Room, The Hateful Eight, Spotlight, and Brooklyn are only available to a small set of filmgoers. Star Wars isn't even out yet at the time of this writing, obviously, but this year has already given us It Follows, Black Hat, Underrated, Aaron Notes, Duke of Burgundy, Bridge of Spies, Steve Jobs, Sicario, Tangerine, and Crimson Peak, and those are the ones I've seen, and I haven't even talked about how awesome Rebecca Ferguson is in Mission Impossible. 2015 feels like a great year to me, Aaron says. I think we all agree. 2015 oh was a pretty great year. I also agree with the Rebecca Ferguson line. Too. Me too. Yep. You voted for Rebecca Ferguson in the Village Voice poll, and I kicked myself. I Did you? That was oh, a I, I like that I, I provoked that response. <laughs> Yep. But at least one of my picks. Oh, how did I not Rebecca even Ferguson was indeed among my top three best supporting actresses. Quick correction during our poll results on the last show. Josh, we read a comment from Blake in Idaho. Mm-hmm. We credit it, though, to Brett from Newton, Mass. And we want to apologize to Blake and maybe to Brett if he didn't appreciate those comments from Blake. So we're sorry to you as both. long as that's settled. That brings us to this week's poll question. Last week, we unveiled the five finalists for the coveted Golden Brick Award. This week, we're asking you to vote for one, and we're going to give you some time because we're going to announce the winner on that live show January 9th. Simply tell us, the winner of the 2015 Golden Brick should be Josh Read off the options. Buzzard from director Joel Petrikas. This is on DVD, but it's also available to stream on Amazon. If you're a Prime member, you could do that for free. The Diary of a Teenage Girl from director Mariel Heller. That's the only finalist, unfortunately, not currently available. The DVD release right now is scheduled for January 19. The Duke of Burgundy, that's been around for a while from Peter Strickland. It's even streaming on Netflix on DVD too. Tangerine, the aforementioned Tangerine from Sean Baker, DVD and streaming on Netflix. And what we do in the shadows. This one's been out for quite a while from Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi. That too is out on DVD and available for digital purchase. So your five finalists for the Golden Brick. And as we alluded to on our last show, Josh, we have assembled an all-star committee, including all the esteemed critics sitting in this room who are going to weigh in and vote and anoint a winner. But film spotting listeners, you do get a vote as well. Your vote counts just as much as all of ours here. Wait a minute. That's not I know. fair. Yeah, I, you know, aren't you shocked that they're just letting people have that sort of say? <laughs> Our listeners are just that astute, Michael. Okay. Well, I guess we it is fair. I'm just, not used to, I'm just not used to thinking about it. It's, it's fair. See, you don't like democracy. it. <laughs> Please do consider your options carefully. Hopefully see all of these movies before voting. Again, you have some time. We're not going to close it down until after January 1st, sometime before January 9th. So you do have a little bit 
of time to get some viewing in. If you haven't already, vote now at filmspotting.net. Tangerine has already been listed twice by the panel here. Let's see if any more Golden Brick nominees make our top 10 list. Pick six, seven, and eight are up next. More of some of the year's best film music coming up in the break. This one from Noah Baumbach's While We're Young. But first, let's hear another pick for the best film of 2015 from fellow podcaster Matt Gorley. I'm a big fan of his I Was There 2 podcast. We'll get that and come back. Stay with us. Hi, this is Matt Gorley from the Super Ego, James Bonding, and I Was There 2 podcast, the last of which is where I talk to people who had small roles in great scenes in film history. My favorite movie of 2015, I think, was Sicario. I expected it to be completely different. In fact, I think I was even confusing it with Oliver Stone's The Savages. So why I even watched it in the first place, yeah, I don't know. But I loved it. It fooled me at every turn. I kept expecting it to be sort of falling in the traps of a cliche film, but it never did. And uh, it was dark and gritty. Hunker down with the one you love and give it a watch. Sicario, my pick for favorite film of 2015. reminder that this week we're brought to you by the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film, offering a two-year student design project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction and nonfiction filmmaking, and transmedia projects. Over the past year or so, Josh, we've gotten a few emails from listeners of Film Spotting who are enrolled in this Vermont College of Fine Art MFA program, and we would certainly love to hear from some more of you. We could share your testimonials, maybe share links to some of your work in our show notes at filmspotting.net or on air during the podcast. All those students, their first semester begins with an on-campus residency week of screenings, workshop lectures, and the preparation for your independent study plan for whatever your personal project is. And then you actually return home to work independently and meet monthly with the faculty via Skype as your projects unfold. This MFA program is designed to fit into the life you have and the films you want to make. Students come to the program with a project in mind. In fact, many arrive with a strong festival and professional record. Then when they join the program, it's to refine their creative voice. The faculty at Vermont College of Fine Art and the special residency artists come from around the globe. They work in every genre of film and time-based media, so they're bringing a wide range of experience in all aspects of film practice. This low residency model addresses the rise of global storytelling, distribution, and access. So at Vermont College of Fine Art, you can refine your creative vision, all while you're developing intensely personal stories in an independent practice. Visit vcfa.edu film. This is Colin Trevorrow, the director of Safety Not Guaranteed, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Hey, Adam, Josh, and Nation of Film Spotting. This is Peter Labuza of The Cinephiliacs. And my favorite film of the year was something I really didn't expect anything out of, and especially as strong as I did. And that is Magic Mike XXL, directed by Gregory Jacobs. I was one of many fans who appreciated the first Magic Mike, but I think this one, which takes more of a Buzzley Berkeley let's put on a show narrative and is shot so gorgeously by Steven Soderbergh. It uses digital photography to 
really make commentaries about race in ways I've never seen before on screen. And it's just a pure pleasure musical. The choreography is amazing. It's also just such a utopic film, bringing together such a heterogeneous community, whether it's male, female, black, white, straight, homosexual. And it never makes a commentary about this. It just accepts it as part of its framework. So thanks for a great year of film spotting, and I'll see you guys in 2016. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam, Josh, and Scott Tobias and Michael Phillips joining us for our end-of-year roundtable. We have already counted down our number 10 and number 9 films of the year. You just heard from Peter Labuza. The aforementioned Peter Labuza took a little bit of a shot in the opening segment of this show for his disdain for the film Son of Saul, a film that, Michael, you appreciate very much. I appreciate very much where Peter Labuza went with his number one choice of 2015, Magic Mike XXL. Nice. I just caught up with this film, inspired by Peter's pick, and he's not wrong. I don't have it in my top 10, but I kind of loved it. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I think it's a better film, actually, than the Soderbergh. Very different. Very, very different. different. Very different thematic agendas. It's it's bigger, I guess, <laughs> than the uh, <laughs> than the first film. But it's exciting. It's fun. Yeah. It's, it's also it's fun. also one of the most optimistic movies of the yes. year. It's just it's it's actually just one of the warmest, yeah. sunniest, most optimistic mm-hmm. movies. Yeah, of very the year. sex positive and, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good stuff there. Thank you very much for that, Peter. We will hear from many more guests here in this segment. Let's quickly recap our number ten and nine picks. Michael, we'll start with you. Number ten for me was Tangerine. Number nine was Heart of a Dog. My number 10 was Western, the Bill and Turner Ross documentary, and The Hateful Eight was number nine. At number 10, I had the horror flick It Follows. Number nine was The Assassin from Ho Shao Shen. I had at number 10, Tangerine, with you there, Michael. And my number nine was Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa opening here in Chicago on January 8th. If my math is correct, that brings us to the number eight film of 2015. Michael Phillips, you're up. My number eight is uh, director Ryan Coogler's Creed, which he co-wrote, and I think in a year that was dominated, like a lot of years are, by reboots and the whole question of franchise maintenance, this for me was the most satisfying of all of them. And that would include, on my list, that would include everything from Spectre to The Force Awakens to, yes, Mad Max Fury Road. I prefer, on on many levels, I prefer Creed. And uh, even Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which I really, really thought was by far the best Mission Impossible film. But Creed, you know, in, in, in one sense, in a, off in a very different direction. I just think it's uh, remarkable that he could get Michael B. Jordan as the son of Apollo Creed in the same story and in the same universe as Sylvester Stallone kind of reinvestigating a character that is dangerously familiar, I think, to the <laughs> to all of us. And to have our sympathies sort of these two characters duking it out for our sympathies and our, our understanding in story terms, and everybody wins in this film. I, yeah. I don't know. I really, this to me was just a, a really mellow kind of revelation of a medium weight uh, blockbuster. I just, I, I, I think the world of it. No, I don't really know what I'm doing here because I, I got other plans in my life and this wasn't part of it. Your father was special. I'll tell you the truth, I don't know if he's special. Only you're going to know that when the time is right. And it ain't going to come overnight. You're going to take a beat, you're going to take this, you're going to get knocked out, you're going to get up, and you're going to see if you got the right thing. But you got to work hard. I swear to God, if you're not going to do it, I'm out. Like every punch I ever thrown has been on my own. Nobody showed me how to do this. I'm ready. I just finally saw it, and I agree with you completely. I think it's great. Well, and it also rescues what had become a, a very cynical 
franchise too. Yes, yes. You know, and one I think that had tarnished the reputation of the original film. So in a way, it was a, it sort of resurrected the Just whole thing. The same position as the Force Awakens was. I mean, who you know what I mean? Right. The way the way are you really going to honestly jump up and defend the second trilogy in the Star Wars Joshua, world? But we yeah, don't have time for that. <laughs> if you want to get into it, I will. <laughs> okay. But that you know what I mean? Creed and the Force Awakens in a way showed up and had to do the same thing to kind of remind people why they fell in love in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, sure. and they do. Yeah. Scott, your number eight. Well, my number eight is happens to be the number one pick from uh, my former Dissolve colleague and current Next Picture Show podcaster, Rachel Handler. So let's hear what she has to say about it. Hi, guys. It's Rachel Handler. My number one movie of the year is definitely uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I, I really didn't expect that to be the case, but it was such just sort of a relentlessly surprising, brutal, beautiful, moving film. And it sort of inspired every single possible emotion in me. I was crying. I was scared. I was, you know, horrified. I was astonished. It was, it really was just such an experience. Um, And yeah, I loved it. So thanks. Bye. Well, yes. So my number eight is Mad Max Fury Road, which uh, is just an act of sustained virtuosity and weirdness from George Miller. I was watching it thinking, how in the world? This is a major studio film with a lot of money behind it. And it, it's so so bizarre and so, it really, I mean, I, I, can't, I guess you can't use the term one of a kind since this is the fourth uh, of the Mad Max movies, but it's an unlikely film. It's, to, to it's ser- and no joke, it is the maddest, craziest of the four it by is. a mile. It's maybe yeah. the best. Maybe the, and I love The Road Warrior so much. But uh, it also had this really strong feminist kick. This is a movie about you know, a man-made apocalypse and the women who have to fight for a place for themselves within it. And that's a very strong theme. And, and it's, it's realized you know, through just a, a, a sheer force of filmmaking. The, 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 uh, uh, what is it, last 40 minutes of the film just is just one long virtuosic sequence and I, I loved it it's a great great experience hmm. can't argue with you unless maybe you have it a little too low so yeah I know low. I think I think I do I think I actually undersold the thing <laughs> at number eight for me is Trainwreck this is the movie that it, it made me laugh more than any other this year I think Amy Schumer is the real deal as a comedy writer and a performer I think director Judd Apatow, he he mostly conjures some of his old magic, uh, especially in his work with some of the supporting cast. I also think this is something of a revisionist romantic comedy, not so much just in the fact that it's written by a woman. I, I think you could say, and some of you by your faces will probably say it, that the <laughs> rom-com plot mechanics here of the story are awfully creaky. But the way that Schumer is comfortable offering this character who doesn't necessarily have this whole feminist thing figured out yet, that that feels fresh and new and honest to me. There's something very confessional about that element of this movie. Is it This character she's playing knows that she wants something more, but she's not quite sure what that is yet. And we get to watch that journey. I think this is why that climactic cheerleading sequence works so well. I mean, it takes that sort of hot button scenario out of the realm of the political and makes it really personal. It's just between these two characters at that moment, between the Schumer character and the Bill Hader character. So, you know, however you feel about cheerleaders, there's something sweet and endearing when you see Amy Schumer's character using this conceit to win back her man. Yeah, we certainly agree about Schumer in that film and that movie providing some of the funnier moments from 2015. My number eight film, not exactly a funny movie, but we're going to have a very funny guy set it up very nicely for us. 
Hi, this is David Wayne, a filmmaker and comedian, and my favorite movie this year was Spotlight by Tom McCarthy. It pretty much did everything you want in a movie. It was thought-provoking and suspenseful, truthful, funny, and, and watching a group of many of our best living actors playing off each other and making genius choices in large roles and smaller roles, it was, it was a blast. I can't wait to see it again. My thanks to David. Of course, you know him from Wet Hot American Summer. They came together and role models found time despite just coming back from the road overseas doing a USO tour. He still managed to call in and share his number one film of the year, Spotlight. I agree with everything David said, including the part where he described it as a blast because as infuriating and as upsetting, obviously, as the widespread abuse at the core of this story, we're talking about the cover-up of the sexual abuse within the Catholic Church that the Boston Globe exposed, it's immensely satisfying to watch professionals do their jobs and do them well. And that goes for the amazing ensemble that David touched on. Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, Stanley Tucci, Liev Schreiber actually is my favorite performance in the film, and there are many others. But also the professional reporters they're portraying. And I think Tom McCarthy, who co-wrote the movie and directed it, takes the same workmanlike professional approach to the material, which I think has led some people to maybe not give him enough credit for his directing choices. I think, Scott, actually, you're... I'm one of those. Yeah, yeah. your Next Picture Show co-host, maybe I should call her your nemesis, Tasha Robinson, might have put this in my head because I listened to your guys' take on All the President's Men and Spotlight, and I was keenly aware watching Spotlight, and it really was because I was so disappointed by the movie Black Mass, another Boston movie from Mm -hmm. 2015, how intimate McCarthy keeps everything. The camera stays on the neighborhood level always. So we don't get any sweeping aerial shots of the city, none of that ominous night photography. We don't get the skyscrapers set against the the Boston Harbor. When they're out canvassing to talk to victims or some of the perpetrators in some of these cases, we don't get any of that. It's really about the secrets being hidden behind those doors. And he always keeps that perspective with the camera. If You want bravura camera moves, though? Spotlight does give us at least one that perfectly illustrates everything I just said about how important that neighborhood perspective is. And unfortunately, I didn't have time to rewatch the scene, so I might not get it exactly right. But it's when one of the reporters, played by Brian Darcy James, comes across an address. He's doing some research on the investigation in, I think, his kitchen or maybe his living room. He sees this address, and then silently, we don't really know what's gotten him going so much, he exits his house. And in one unbroken take, we follow him as he walks out the door, down the street, around the corner, and then goes and stands in front of another house. And I think the implication is it's one of those places where the church sends some of its priests to, quote unquote, rehabilitate. And in that moment, it's no longer just a story he's investigating. It's no longer something he can distance himself from. It's hitting him where he lives in his neighborhood. It's probably the flashiest sequence in Spotlight, but it's totally functional. It just completely heightens that key theme of the movie. That was one of my favorite moments of the entire year in cinema. And you have to give Tom McCarthy some credit for that. Well, so, it emphasizes Spotlight's my number eight. Emphasizes the closeness of That's that it. house to it's his It's all about that proximity. And, right, right. Yeah. No, I, I'm not going to fault any of his choices here. There's, uh, I think, I guess this almost sounds like faint praise, but I think this is really the best possible application of the Tom McCarthy style. I don't know if he's ever going to make a film better than this, but it's scrupulous, mm-hmm. which is what it needs to be. And it's actor-driven. He's very, very good at that. And he, he does his research. Mm-hmm. And it's an absolutely invigorating thing to witness for sure michael phillips your number seven film of the year my number seven is i've only seen this once and i'm i'm uh, in some ways dreading a second viewing because it's just so intense but it's beasts of no nation directed by kiri fukunaga and um 
like a film that's uh, going to come up on my list a little bit higher, Son of Saul. It's a bruising experience just to get through emotionally. But I think, uh, you know, this is a story of child soldiers in an unnamed African country, and Idris Elba plays the warlord who's sort of uh, one of the most terrifying authority figures you'll see in uh, in the movies, certainly uh, in 2015. It's not a director I've I've loved in the past necessarily, uh, even, but the work's always been intriguing and often very stylish. And I, I find that if the style of this picture had been tipped even just a little bit more into the kind of slickness that some of his other work has sort of approached, you'd, you'd be in a very dubious moral and ethical territory, I think, because the wrong kind of melodrama or slickness for this subject would have been just simply too much to bear and would have crashed the whole concern. But it's to me, I was just completely gripped by this sad, sad story that does offer you uh, the sliver of hope that seems honest to me and and humanly plausible instead of just Hollywood plausible. <laughs> so, yeah, I, and I think this film, frankly, was the most underrated of the really good movies this year. Because a lot of people thought, eh, too much, or not for me, or pretty good, but... And I just had a much stronger reaction to it. Commandant, sir! So I see, what are we to be doing with this thing? This thing? It's just a boy. A boy? A boy is nothing. A boy is harmless. Does a boy have two eyes to see? Two eyes, sir! A boy has hands to strangle and fingers to pull triggers. Why are you saying a boy is nothing? Eh? A boy is very, very dangerous. You understand me? Very dangerous. You understand? Yes, sir! Huh? Yes, sir! Was, was there any issue for you, Michael, though, by the lack of particulars to this story? Mm-hmm. Because I came out of it feeling, you know, I've been through movies like this. Horrible fact-based dramas, and even if they didn't offer clear hope at the end, I felt like I had endured it for a reason. I might not be able to put my name. But you didn't feel like name, you had you... I didn't feel that here. Mm-hmm. And, and the only thing I could put my finger on is the fact that it's it's an unnamed nation. There There isn't any real sense of, of who, what lives are at stake or what. Yeah, it's the real world supposedly, but not really. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm very ambivalent about this, no, this I, film. I, I'm, I'm not ambivalent about it. I didn't find the, you know, the liberties. It's a fictional story. And in the same way, I don't want to equate it to the wrong realm of fiction, but in the same way that, say, Graham Greene was very socio-politically aware when he wrote, uh, you didn't, you know, and it was it's all based on research and personal travels, but it's it's also pure invention. And, I, and but I think from a very strong and kind of arresting moral perspective. I don't know. I, I really, I didn't have any problems with it that way. Others do. Many others do. And maybe a second viewing will tell me more about why I why I don't have those problems. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to it. Uh, it's not an easy sit. Right. It'd be, I think you're right. It deserves a second viewing, but it'd be a rough one to, yeah. to go through. Yeah. My response to it was mysterious to be I, 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 my non-response, I huh. suppose. It just, and I think what clarified it was uh, David Ehrlich, who writes for Rolling Stone now. You know, I said I was kind of wondering out loud, like, what, what is it about this film? It's got seems to have everything going for it. And he says, well, it's got a premise, 
but it doesn't have a story. Mm, uh, I disagree. I, that, I, I do I not agree. Uh, I think that kind of, in, in which, in all the, all the things you just said, Josh, too, the the lack of specificity really hurts the film. I think. Hmm. I don't. I just don't find that. I, I guess I, I find that the actors, uh, young, old, uh, untrained, trained, all all fill in. I guess. I guess to me, more story would have turned it into the wrong kind of film. Hmm. Frankly, Scott, you're up. Number sure. seven. My number seven is It Follows, which uh, nice. yeah, right. Okay, and I think this is a case. I mean, I don't know why people are getting hung up on the logic of the thing. Just let it, <laughs> just let it go. Let it go because it's a great because con- the whole movie is predicated no, on no, that but logic. It's a, but but it's a brilliant concept, right? Yes, I get it. A rich concept, mm-hmm. and I think the I just think the execution is so thrilling uh, it's uh, you know it's got this really aggressive soundtrack it's got these very strange it's got a kind of a kubrickian rigor in terms of the camera movements and the camera placement it's a very there are very odd angles it, it disconcerts you in a way that that is unusual for a horror film i think and i think the film is basically a horror version of his debut feature, which you liked, the the, the myth of the American sleepover, mm-hmm. and I, it could have been just a really good hangout movie. Like it, it functions quite well as that, and then but then on top of it, it is a it is a very scary, an original, and really strikingly made horror film. I, I really love it. Scott, our bonding over it follows is not going to last long. <laughs> I'm afraid, unless okay. you guys sleep with each other, because then because then the curse <laughs> will be true. the curse will be where will it's it his be? problem. It, well, I, I could never follow the logic, Michael. Yeah. I, I don't know how that works. Number seven is the Revenant for me. Like okay. Leo, all alone in the wilderness, sitting by himself next to a pitiful campfire. I'll be the one tonight to champion the Revenant. That's sleeping, right. sleeping in your bear or your horse. What does what he sleep in? Whatever I can find, Michael. Yeah, right, yeah. Spoiler I think it was a, I think it was a tonton. tonton I'm, I'm, right. a, I'm a desperate man. <laughs> I held my breath through this movie, you know, during so many sequences. I, I laughed at this movie when I couldn't believe how audacious a scene was becoming and then how long it was sustaining that tension. The director is Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari too, but the true auteur here is the cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki. His camera, it creates this, it's an omniscient, unearthly sort of observance that when you think about it is pretty cruel um, how we're looking on these men. It seems to be only mildly interested in the life and death struggles that they're going through. I love the moments where it would just sort of pan away to something else or the scene where Leo goes over the cliff in the horse and into a tree and it just hangs there kind of looking at the tree and not letting us know if he made it. You know, it's this Hmm. outsider point of view. Now, ironically, what this did for me, it is it made the movie's very few moments of mercy resonate all the more just because it was amidst all this brutality. So it it wasn't just a visceral experience for me. I I did find it moving as well. I, I really can't imagine why. You wouldn't appreciate what the filmmakers are accomplishing here. Maybe, maybe unless you have an unnatural fear of bears, then then I would give it to you. <laughs> well, I don't know where to start. I don't know if we want to turn this into an indictment. I love how we just, and the I love how we just attack each other's picks. That's really my favorite part of this whole show. It's like, well, here are your favorite films of the year. Let's, let's and here's let's why you're wrong. The camera, Josh. I can answer your question. Is always panning away because the director wants to insist that you recognize that he's doing something really cool with the camera at all times, no. as opposed to actually expressing something that's remotely interesting with those images. It's creating a perspective. <laughs> I wish. I well, wish it was. You know, I'm going to say a couple of things to back you up here. Oh. Okay. One is that... See what one the is that, follows pick got me? One is that... This is what it gets. It, it gets you, I think... 
about 40 minutes, which is the, the first 40 <laughs> minutes of the film agreed, I thought were agreed. absolutely superb. Agreed. It's his best film. Is the first hour of the film. Yeah, and I think it's his best film since Amores Peros, actually. But agreed. the other thing, and this is the point I made about Spotlight, this is pretty much the best film that I think I can expect from Inuritu because it plays, it's so much in his wheelhouse. It's such, it, it is a film that sort of naturally calls for the intensity that he goes for at every moment. But to me, that intensity, it just it becomes oppressive at two mm-hmm. and a half hours. And, it, and he's not showing me anything else. There's no richness or depth to it. And I think it gets kind of all silly at a certain point. But yeah, one man's audacity is another man's silliness. Yeah. I think yeah. we I would mean, say. I, yeah. So, uh, I, but I, I guess I'm, it's probably my, my most famous review was hating the last one, which I think he was really unsuited to, which is Birdman. And uh, this, this is a much better film, I think. I'll take that. it. I'll take okay. that. I think <laughs> I even believe, I'm good. pretty sure I believe it's his best film since Amores Peros as well, and I don't care for it much. So I guess you can read into that what you will. My number seven is a movie, I think it's possible I'm the only one in here who has seen it. I don't know that that's ever happened in nine years of doing this. Michael, prove me wrong. Okay. Jafar Panahi's Taxi. Seen it? Okay. Michael Phillips is there with me. (laughs) I mentioned finding spots for the movies that delighted me this year. I was giddy watching Taxi. This is another one of Panahi's This Is Not a Film films. He's been banned from making movies in his native Iran. This is the third movie he's made since his sentence. So what we get is him pretending to be a cabbie in Tehran for a day with a dashboard camera documenting his passengers and his journeys. And just when you might be ready to accept that this is a documentary of sorts and this is real, that perhaps none of this at all was staged and none of these people are actors, something happens like he goes to pick up his niece from school and he's late. So she's been out there all alone and has been beginning to worry. And I, of course, am thinking of the mirror Panahi's film that I adore Josh from our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. And I immediately flash back to that film about this young girl who's trying to get home from school on her own. The girl even looks like the actress from Mm. the mirror. And then a few minutes into their conversation in the car, she compares herself to that girl. So you get that. You were in heaven. Oh, I was in heaven. Add (laughs) to the meta layers. She's making a movie for class and keeps talking about how she has to make it a distributable movie, which, of course, his movies can't be distributed. Earlier, there's this really emotionally charged scene that plays out in the back of the cab where a man has just been in an accident and Panahi is taking him to the hospital and his wife is hysterical in the back seat. He thinks he's going to die. I don't want to reveal anything more, but it feels so real. It's as intense as anything in Mad Max Fury Road. That's how into that moment I was. When they get out, there's another passenger who was in the car who witnessed the whole thing. And he kind of coolly says to Panahi, who he recognized as the filmmaker Jafar Panahi, oh, you almost got me there with those actors. And what I love about that moment is Panahi betrays nothing to the audience. He doesn't protest. He doesn't play along with the man. He just keeps going about his day. I think all that matters to Panahi in that moment is that passenger's perception of the truth, and he's not going to do anything to manipulate it. I want to be clear that ultimately by the end of the movie, I don't have any illusions, or at least I don't think I have any illusions, Michael, about whether this is reality or fantasy, but the artifice only does really heighten the truth that Panahi is exploring. And I loved seeing, you mentioned my pick of Rebecca Ferguson earlier in one of those ballots on the IndieWire critics poll, Panahi came in 31st for best actor. (laughs) And if that sounds low, yeah, it is. But I was surprised he got any points at all because he's playing himself. It's not clear what's performance and what isn't, which on the surface would seem to make it very easy to overlook as performance. It doesn't seem like he's acting. But of course, that's what makes it 
a great performance that you don't know, that you don't see those layers of artifice in what he's doing. He's just such a warm, endearing figure. And this whole endeavor, I think Richard Brody mentioned this, he loved the movie, that it could be perceived as this narcissistic endeavor, but you would never accuse no, Panahi no, of that no, because no. he's so warm. Th- because he's just trying to connect. It's not about him at all. It's about his connections to these people and this environment. I don't think anyone... Uh, give me a filmmaker who's been more fruitful under essentially house arrest. I mean, he's, right. I mean, he's, he's found a way to make movies... Uh, under under the government's eye, uh, uh, between this is not a film and and, and taxi particularly, I, I just this one just missed my top ten. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, no, it's small but quite perfect. And, Great, uh, uh, yeah, good work. All right, number six. We're here in the home stretch, Michael. What is your pick? I'm going to be the first to mention uh, Carol, uh, directed by Todd Haynes. <laughs> That's my number six. Uh, it's a gorgeous, really shrewd adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith romance uh, that she wrote under a pseudonym called The Price of Salt. And, of course, this is about a secret love that will not stay a secret, set in early 1950s America, Manhattan mostly, shot in Cincinnati. Uh, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara play the lovers. And this is a case where I think every aspect of this production, which was not an easy one, it took years and years and years to get out of development. They ran over budget during filming, and they had to you know, call in the insurance bond, and it was touch and go. They never had much money. But every decision that went into getting Carol to the screen, I think, was 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 an inspired one. The, the screenwriter, Phyllis Nagy, has a really smart bookend invention that is not in the novel. That was actually Haynes's idea, I think, in collaboration. But Carter Burwell's musical score, the fact that he wrote this and the score for Anomalisa, it's the two best scores of recent years, practically. And I, while the one thing that kind of nags at me is a slight... Overstatement in the film is is simply the size and scale of Kate Blanchett's performance. It's always, it's got that slight, deliberate and very crafty layer of artifice because this woman is sort of an artificial construct anyway. Mm-hmm. Blanchett's always pretty big. Uh, I, I found myself resisting her Oscar-winning work in the Woody Allen film because I wasn't much engaged with the Woody Allen film, and there's just a little hint of something that she cannot seem to. Get rid of that. It's always 110% when 100 will do. But the best work you see from her, and especially from Rooney Mara, and really everybody here, this is the past uh, evoked, not just sort of cleverly or um, stylishly, but really, really soulfully. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, it's, I'm very, it, it held up beautifully a second time. What do you do on Sundays? Nothing in particular. What do you do? Oh, nothing lately. I mean, if you'd like to come visit me sometime, you're welcome to. At least there's some pretty country around where I live. Would you like to come visit me this Sunday? Yes. <laughs> what a strange girl you are. I think the benefit of that Blanchett performance, though, Michael, you're you're right. It gets you know quite big at times, but it allows for that little moment of crumbling that comes in the second half of the bookend, which is just so... I don't know if that would have been as effective if she hadn't been putting on the airs that she did. Right, I agree. Earlier, and know? I will say that in the in a key scene in the lawyer's office at the end, it that all go, it all goes yeah, away. Too. It all goes yeah. away. Very straight, very clean uh, technique. And uh, I mean, she's a formidable technician. So the, these are fine points. <laughs> it's fascinating to me. I'm just now learning that, the, about that 
little structural addition, which to me just sells the film. Totally. I mean, it's it's, it's going to appear a little bit later for me, but it's remarkable to hear you say that because I, I think that's one of those things where they one of those little inventions that really makes the movie well yeah. i just i made it up i can't prove it <laughs> really? i can't prove okay. it well it's funny you mentioned the size of the performance too or that artifice that comes in i mentioned to josh kind of as an aside but i think i'm going to buy into it a little bit i don't think it's by accident that there's a moment earlier in the film where they're watching sunset boulevard yeah. on yeah. the big screen right and there's right. a bit of norma desmond to Kate Blanchett's yep. performance. Yep, yep, yep. There also is to her character, of course, right, in the way she takes on this up-and-coming, aspiring artist and kind of is that older romantic figure to that younger figure. Right, I don't know. Right. I we, don't know look, if Todd we, Haynes is going there or not. And but. we could do 10 minutes just on how this film looks. Uh, Ed, Ed Lockman's cinematography shot this thing on Super 16, and it just has a a texture, a visual sort of—I don't want to use the word grainy because that's that's such a negative for so many people. But it just looks like, quite by design, all, a lot of photography and photographers of the era, including Chicago's own Vivian Meyer, uh, mm-hmm. and by turning that character that Rooney Mara plays into a budding and very talented photographer instead of a scenic designer, which she was in the novel. It just gives the film a whole nother visual world to naturally pursue brilliantly. It's a film of lower medium budget size, like 12, 15 million, which sounds like a ton of money for an indie filmmaker, certainly. But when you see what they get out of that and how they how they use the money they had to tell the story they had, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's quite instructive and inspiring, I think. Well, Scott, we're at your number six pick. And you have a little bit of help here. I know that three of us here in the room, myself, you, and Josh, have seen the film from this year from this director, Joel Petrikas. The movie Buzzard is among the better films of the year, whether it makes any of our top ten lists or not. And his favorite movie of the year is your number six. Let's hear from Joel. Hey, Adam, Josh, Sam, Candace, and Golden Joe Dassault. This is Joel Petrikas, writer and director of the Golden Brick-nominated film Buzzard. I'm here to chime in on my favorite film of 2015. Um, although I did see Mad Max three times in the theater, I think it's too much of an easy pick. Uh, at the time of this recording, Star Wars has not been released yet, and The Revenant has not come to Michigan, which, believe it or not, features uh, Buzzard lead actor Joshua Burge. So instead, I'm going with Heaven Knows What by Josh and Benny Safdie. Um, the film is a realistic, intense um, incredibly gritty portrayal of the New York junkie underground uh, community starring Ariel Holmes in her first leading role based on her true life experiences. It is a punch to the gut over and over. Um, as soon as I saw it at the Munich International Film Festival, I had to immediately email the directors and say, you guys have made a near masterpiece. This thing is almost a masterpiece. It's that good. So that's my pick. Heaven knows what. See you guys. Yes, so my number six is Heaven Knows What. Uh, Between this movie on the East Coast and Tangerine on the West Coast, American independent films offered an invigorating take on the street drama because this could have been also an earnest portrait of teenage drug addicts living on the margins, or it could have been sort of an exploitation movie like Kids. But instead, it's an aggressive, aesthetically aggressive, both in terms of the, the style and the music. It's a very passionate drama with a very strong, true romantic spirit. 
it feels both true to the life of its star, Ariel Holmes, and uh, and, it, and it's sort of a kind of a dreamy, textured punk anthem. I just mm. I love it. Uh, I think it, it also made your list last yeah, year. Made my list last year. I have it. I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival a year ago in September, and it was crazy about it, frankly, and really knocked out by it. And I I just didn't want to wait. <laughs> and these guys are great. The, the Safdie brothers who directed this uh, film, they did uh, a documentary called Lenny about a basketball player that was again not a conventional documentary by any means kind of took some old footage and footage they shot and mixed it together and created something new and exciting i think these guys are onto something hmm. i'm going to add to the praise we've had so far for tangerine with my number six pick you guys have pretty much gotten a handle on what's so great about it i think there's for me there's three defining qualities to tangerine the humor the tawdriness and then this really inexplicable strange but but persistent beauty in almost every frame what Sean Baker, the director, has managed is just the way he combines and balances those elements in each of the scenes. And yes, that car wash sequence, I think, is one of them. The ending, Adam, that you mentioned as well. And that ending is why, as as we've said, it is a great Christmas movie. I mean, it, it takes place on Christmas Eve, but in the end, in that finale, it finds a place that against all odds for, for the characters that we meet does resemble, uh, it resembles a little bit of grace. So this is one that uh, I'm so glad it is streaming now on Netflix still, as we mentioned earlier, because um, makes it really easy to find the sort of film that you know a few years ago would have been impossible for anyone to track down. You think of some films that come out of Sundance that that get a, a lot of buzz, like Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which I didn't mind, but mm. uh, but uh, when you t- they're so determined to kind of dazzle you visually with what with what they can do with with the money they have that the movies invariably end up looking like a compendium of obvious influences. Here's a Scorsese shot. Here's a da-da-da. Here's a da and, and Tangerine, I did not feel that way. I just feel like the, there was a strong visual personality in that film, the way the camera sort of runs laterally or, or, or behind or sort of like comes at them, all these you know people scrambling up the sidewalk at, at, the, at a really dynamic angle at sort of medium top running speed. And it's just a series of, of simple decisions about how we're going to film this story that didn't feel to me like, okay, that comes from that film director or this, this filmmaker. It's right. The, ob- yeah. the influences are there, but they're not obvious. And no, it's, a, it's its own belief thing. It's it's quite mm-hmm. an experience. Can I add two words that we have not said so far about Tangerine? James Ransone. Yes, as, he's as great. No one, uh, the pimp, Chester. James Ransone is somebody who <laughs> I really enjoy seeing in everything he does. He's he, he makes Sinister much more bearable, if you recall that. <laughs> and uh, he's, again, so much defining this film spirit. Very spontaneous, funny. And when he comes onto the screen, yeah. you know, the film really just, just gets <laughs> Well, he drives the whole plot, right? I mean, obviously, sure. it's all a quest to find him, and you wonder if you're ever even going to find him, and yeah. he doesn't disappoint. Yeah, what a man. Do. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, for my number six, Josh, you gave me at number seven, The Revenant, a pick that I could scoff at. I'm going to give the gift back to you. You can scoff at my number six. A big surprise for me this year, how about the fact that Noah Baumbach made two films that were top 10 contenders for me. One would be Mistress America, 
the one that made my list oh, is While We're Young. You had to pick the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, I did. Sorry, Josh. It was dropped, though, by the esteemed Ryan Johnson in his voicemail we heard earlier as one of the best films of the year. That gives me so much joy that Debbie Downer Larson is not going to be able to shake my appreciation <laughs> for this movie. I acknowledged during our review that it was certainly a film that should have been in my wheelhouse. It's very reminiscent of Woody Allen. I suggested that Ben Stiller's Josh character could be a protege of the unsuccessful documentarian Cliff that Allen plays in Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is also a rumination on my two favorite cinematic subjects, mortality and the nature of truth. But it's not a Bergman movie. It's not some philosophical treatise. It's too grounded. It's too damn funny. It's too uncynical. And I'm a fan of all the performances in the film, but in particular, Adam Driver as the hipster aspiring filmmaker who provokes this midlife crisis in Stiller's character. I think what he pulls off is it's really hard not to want to, in any given moment, punch him in the face and simultaneously want to be his best friend, who is plotting to maybe try to steal his life force at some point, which is essentially what Stiller is trying to do, because there's something so attractive and contagious about his energy and his optimism, even if it is a little bit of an act as we come to learn as the film goes on. Hey, beautiful class. Oh, thanks. I don't know why the PowerPoint didn't work. I love what you said about hyper-reality. Thanks. I'm Jamie. This is my wife, Darby. Josh Shrebnik. Nice to meet you. It was interesting. Thanks. Not sure why that PowerPoint didn't work. How did you get in here? Well, we're auditing your class. It's a uh, continuing education class. You can't audit a continuing education class. <laughs> I'm a fan. And hey, I really loved your film, Power Elite. You've seen it. Hey, thanks. It's everything I aspire to, and you make it look so easy. Uh... Do you make documentaries? I shoot stuff, you know, with friends. Yeah, they're nothing like what you're doing. He's always shooting. I think a lot of the comedy, too, I touched on this during our conversation about the movie, Josh, comes from Baumbach's editing, the rhythms, and also the cinematography and the framing. So I love While We're Young. And if you're not convinced, our very own producer, Sam Van Halgren, as you may recall, gave it five stars on Letterboxd. And I'm going to close with his comments. He says, I think the movie is actually quite wise about how it portrays not just youth, but the perception of youth by the old slash older. Baumbach could easily have made a movie that satirizes or worse condemns the millennials and their sense of entitlement, but he doesn't. He forces his Gen X protagonists to get down dirty with them. And I believe it when they come out of the experience changed, not because Jamie and Darby, that's the driver and Amanda Seyfried characters and their tribe have anything specific to offer, but because Stiller's Josh and Watts's Cornelia, Naomi Watts is his wife, allowed themselves to be vulnerable. The movie teaches us that there is no way to avoid looking foolish to someone. Have a kid, don't have a kid, collect records, wear earbuds, wear a fedora, age your age, no one gets out alive, literally. Well said, Sam. Well what, said. What other dubious five-star rating did Sam recently <laughs> get? I, uh, wasn't there one we were just talking about? Oh, he had quite about? a few of them during his time in your chair, Josh. So you're right. Maybe <laughs> I shouldn't put too much stock in his five-star review. But he spoke very eloquently about the strengths of that movie. So I love it. I love it. And it's it's a personal choice for me. It's one of those movies that, yeah, there were a lot of detractors on. Some people appreciated it. Few people appreciated it as much as I, I think did. One, one thing that really helps keep that film on the on the track is that that it is not particularly easy on the Ben Stiller character. It's not like he's some sort of you know serene moral no. center to, to, <laughs> to you know surrounded by. He's he's a, he's a needy you know needy. narcissistic, self-absorbed, yep. insecure 
painfully recognizable guy. Exactly. <laughs> He's a Noah Baumbach exactly. character. Yeah, yeah, Noah Baumbach. And I mean, uh, yeah, I, I only wish that film, Adam, didn't kind of fall off the cliff in the last 10 minutes. Because I, I, I do find that once it gets to that Lincoln Center tribute to the Charles Grodin character and the, and the and the and it becomes much more frankly kind of lecture oriented about here's the here's the moral of the story here's the thesis here's the yeah. lesson learned But see where we disagree about that and Josh is just never going to agree with me is I just don't see Baumbach in those moments as caring at all about the lecture he's delivering it's all about how the characters perceive the lecture, how yeah. they're responding to it. It's but not it, about it him died, actually it, trying to force anything but on But it us. dies as a narrative, I think, at that point, hmm. a little bit. It loses some steam. Yeah. I will give you that. Right. The I'll Wrong Man. That. The Wrong Man was Sam's five-star review. That, that one's a little, makes a little more sense to me. <laughs> it does. It's Hitchcock, after all. Yeah, so. that's a, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> and it's a pretty good one. We'll give him that. That is part one of our top ten films of the year countdown. You can hear our top five choices next week. And we're also going to share a little bit of bonus content. We haven't done this in months here. We've just been too swamped, but we're going to force what is bonus our, our colleagues to sit around. Though, Scott, you're excited about this. I know oh, you have yeah. lots of picks for the worst movies of the year. So that bonus content will be available if you have the Film Spotting app, or you can go to filmspotting.net and click on apps and get all the information about that. We want to know your picks for your favorite films of the year or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. And we're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Scott, Michael, thank you both. Hope you have energy to plow through the rest of our list, but this has been fun so far. Tell us Really quickly, if listeners want to check out your lists on the web somewhere, where can they find you, Michael? I believe you can find them in the labyrinth that is chicagotribune.com slash movies. All right. How about you, Scott? Well, I think my list would be somewhere on the Village Voice film poll. But in terms of my work, uh, you can find me at NPR, Variety, Village Voice, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, GQ, and other outlets. Holy, well, slow Busy down. guy. We will not link to all of those outlets, but some of them over <laughs> okay. in our show notes at filmspotting.net, over at our website as well. You can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives. While you're there, please do take a moment to vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you who should be the winner in this year's Golden Brick competition. And this isn't just some arbitrary poll question. Your vote matters. Whoever wins this poll, you have an equal vote as everyone else who's making up the all-star jury voting mm, for the just, Golden just, Brick. Just hacks me off. <laughs> we will. That, that egalitarian. <laughs> we'll keep it in mind for next year. Michael's vote counts for two moving forward. Also in our show notes, we will link to the Village Voice poll that Scott mentioned because that was released this week and some of us in the room did participate in that as well as the IndieWire critics polls and the Chicago Film Critics Association awards, which I believe as we are speaking at this moment, they have announced who won those final categories after announcing the nominees on Tuesday morning or Monday morning of this week. If you're curious how the Chicago Film Critics voted, I'm going to guess Mad Max Fury Road yeah, won. Yeah, me too. It looked that way. Yeah, it did have the most nominations in the initial balloting. Again, if you're curious about any of those polls, we'll link to them in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Out in wide release, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip. <laughs> Sisters, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler is out, and a little movie called Star Wars The Force Awakens, which, having talked about it a little bit earlier in the show and Josh, us reviewing it on the podcast earlier in the week, we can all recommend some a little more than others, but we all recommend The yeah, Force Awakens. Yeah, true. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. And people are really going to enjoy this film. I, I think I, so, too. I want to see it with an audience, because I think the response to it is going to be... I'm seeing it again Monday. Wonderful. Yeah, people sure. keep asking me, of course, what I thought of it, and I don't want to spoil anything, and I just say... 
I don't think you'll be disappointed. No. And that's about all I can say about it. Next week, part two of our top 10 of 2015 roundtable, we will hear from Scott and Michael again. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.